0: Amen. All right. Do me a favor. If you can track down a Bible, get with me, get with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, uh, verses one to 18. We're doing a series right now in the middle of the book of Acts. And uh, the truth is this will feel a little bit redundant because it's a continuation of what we started talking about last week. But the story goes on and we find out a little bit more about what God is doing in the midst of his church. And so we're going to hear some things repeated, but that's good for us because we don't often learn on the first try. So uh, we'll take two and hopefully God will help us again to think about the things that we have biases against and the way that we deal with people and the way that we sometimes actually get in the way of what God is up to in this world. And so Acts chapter 11 verses 1 to 18, I'll read it. We'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, And in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send a Joppa for Simon who's called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, Even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would speak. We want to hear your voice loud and clear, and we want to respond with obedience and faith. We pray for the searching work of the Holy Spirit that reveals um, things about us that need adjustment, and we pray, Lord, uh, with anticipation that you'll do that right now, that you will show us if we have things that we feel or think or say or do, that don't align with your will. Help us not to stand in your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this story teaches us about a few different things. It teaches us about prejudice and how we deal with other people. It teaches us about providence and how God arranges and orchestrates human history to accomplish his purposes. And it teaches us about his promises of how he's bringing about salvation. So let's get to work. Prejudice is when we look at other people and we look at either an individual or a group or their characteristics, and we look at them and we think negative things about them. We, we begin to say things that, that, and feel things that kind of articulate this disdain for them, that we don't like them. We don't like what they're about. We don't, we're, we, we don't like what these individuals are about. Now, this shows up in a lot of different ways. I believe right now the reality of prejudice is just palpable right? You're walking through life right now and you can just feel it. There's so much hostility toward people who are different from one another. And it falls in, in you know, different areas of racism and classism and sexism and political partyism and all these different things. And people are kind of going through life with different opinions of the world. But the problem is the way that we feel about somebody that we differ from is revealing this prejudice. And, and it's in all different areas of life. I'll give you a, a petty example um, just to show you that it shows up even in kind of subcultures. Um, somebody was talking to me and they implied that I'm a yuppie. They said yuppie and they implied that I was one of them and had friends who were yuppies. And, and can, you, can you imagine what happened in my heart? Um, this is the normal thing when somebody applies a label to you and you recognize that it's derogatory, right? Yuppie is from the 80s and it's that time, you know, when it, it, they were shorthanding that young urban professional, which nowadays that sounds really cool. Young urban professionals, but it's a derogatory term to say like you're an uppity kind of person and you're affluent and you, you know, you, you, all these different things. And so somebody implied that I'm a yuppie and I got offended, right? I bit my tongue, but I began to think, I grew up on a tree farm. I can jumpstart a case tractor with a flathead screwdriver. Our family vacations growing up were canoe trips in Canada. We'd put all of our food and supplies in our backpacks, and then we'd put canoes on our shoulders. We'd go up into the boundary waters of Canada. We'd canoe across lakes and set up shop. I began to think, yuppie, come on, right? So I'm offended. When we express our prejudice, what does that do? It offends other people. It distances us from those individuals and it creates an environment where it's very, very hard to have a relationship. And here we find in our story that God is confronting prejudice. He's dealing with this issue that we have, that all of us have, where we look at somebody who's different from us and we say, God can't love them. I don't like them. And we begin to articulate that. So the question I would have then is how do you find your prejudice and one of the ways that you can find it is by looking at the things that you criticize. That's how it shows up in our passage here this morning. Look with me at verses one and two. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. And they said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and you ate with them. Criticism is a way that you can unearth the things that you, that you have a prejudice against. What are the things that you critique right now? The things in the world where you look at an individual or a group or an ideology and you just can't help but to say negative things about it. That's one of the ways that you can find your prejudice. Now, when we begin to think about the negative effects of of having and holding and expressing prejudice, there are many things that, that need to be said. Um, one of the negative effects of having prejudice like this is that it's a dehumanizing activity. When you look at somebody else who's different from you, you actually begin to express your distaste for them in a way that is dehumanizing. So when, when, the, uh, when the sheet was let down, um, Peter's having this vision and a sheet is let down by his four corners. What does he see in there? Filthy animals right? There's this dietary thing that they have. They've got some considerations uh, for the things that they eat and don't eat. God had given them rules and instructions of the, the appropriate menu for the people of God, which really was a gift, right? That you have 21 meals throughout the course of a week. And God says, I want you every time that you eat to be mindful of the things that are permissible for you to eat, and things that are impermissible for you to eat. So every time they're eating, they're being reminded, we are the holy people of God. We're different. Other people might eat those things. We don't do that. But this wasn't simply about dietary restrictions. In fact, just so that we don't get off track here, we don't want to walk away from this morning thinking, maybe I need to change my diet. Maybe that's the issue here. Now that all of that was really just pointing to what Jesus was coming to do, that he was going to fulfill a lot of those different civil and ceremonial laws and expectations, but by his fulfillment of them, he also sets them aside. So in Luke chapter seven, we're told that this isn't just about what you eat. Luke chapter seven, he says to his disciples, are you so dull? He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So, When that vision is happening, Peter is seeing all of these animals and he's saying, I don't eat those sorts of things because those are unclean. We're not just talking about food here. God is taking it up a level. And he's saying, No, no, no. This has to do with how you treat people. This has to do with how you look at other people made in the image of God and how you react to them. And it is dehumanizing because here's what you're doing. When you look at somebody else and you think to yourself, Those people are impure, they're unclean, they're unworthy. Here's what you're doing. You are calling them a filthy animal. You're looking at them and you are, you, you are reducing them to the place of something that is repulsive to you. So back to that food analogy, there are certain foods that you cannot eat, right? I mean, some of you are foodies and anything on the plate, no matter how bizarre it may be, you're fine with it, you'll, you'll eat it. But some of us have a gag reflex and you put something in front of, of us and you look at it and you go, okay, I want you to eat that. You go, I, I can't. I can't eat that. My palate would not allow for that. I, I, would, I would puke. Um, and that's how some of us respond to other people. We look at other people and our gag reflex goes off. We're dehumanizing them. We're thinking, oh, that is repulsive to me. And let me just, I'll do this. And I wasn't sure if I should or not, but I'll just say a handful of words right now that are pretty common in, in public dialogue and I just want you to to notice how you react to them, okay? So I'll, I'll say a handful of words and you just kind of pay attention to what goes on on your interior, okay? So if I say things like conservative Republican or liberal Democrat or people who adhere to the recommendations of health officials or people who disagree with the recommendation of health officials, or people who say black lives matter, or people who say all lives matter. Notice that, and you can see this in in public dialogue right now, a lot of those different concepts are invoking in people their prejudice. And what happens is you, you puke in your mouth a little bit. You hear something and you so disagree with it. It makes you so angry that you can't help but criticize it. And you begin to look at these other people who maybe hold that viewpoint that you don't share and you dehumanize them. You, you, you basically treat them as a filthy animal. And as you talk about them, you can't help but use derogatory language. So obviously, prejudice is an unhelpful thing. And certainly when we consider the mission of God. So providence, or I'm sorry, prejudice um, is when we're critiquing other people, it shows up in those things. And, um, and it makes the potential of relationships just really unlikely. If you negatively react to people who are different from you, how on earth could you ever have a civil conversation? Now, I'm not saying you need to adopt their worldview or come to a place of, of absolute agreement on everything, but you need to, as a believer, you need to actually be able to move toward people and have sane and sensible conversations. And this is really important when we consider the mission of God, which is the topic of our text here. When you maintain your prejudice, there is a chance that you are standing in God's way, that he's trying to do something with a people that you disagree with. And you're so committed to your disagreement of them that you're standing in God's way. Now, this is what the early church really had to wrestle through. Were they willing to make the adjustments necessary to see the gospel go beyond what they were comfortable with? Were they willing to allow the good news of the gospel to spill out beyond Jerusalem to other people, to Gentiles, people unlike them? And when that happens, what would they do? Would they force those individuals to try to become like them? Or would they allow for the seed of the gospel to be planted in foreign soil? So we need to think about the things that are really irritating to us right now and the prejudices that we have and and ask honestly, are we standing in God's way? Are we so committed to the hatred of another people group that we would we'd actually be disappointed if we saw the gospel spring up there? John Stott, the commentator, he says it like this, the fundamental emphasis of the Cornelius story is that since God doesn't make distinctions in his new society, we have no liberty to make them either. So we need to be careful about how we are dealing with people who are different from us. So this story teaches us something about prejudice. Secondly, it teaches us about God's providence. Having been criticized for for going there and doing that and proclaiming the good news of the gospel to Gentiles, Peter tells the story. He goes through the story and he retells it, but this time he tells it to show that this is the hand of God, that this is the work of God. He notes the providence of God by telling the story. Look at verse four, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. So he goes back and he looks at everything that he just went through and he tells the narrative and he does it with with an attention to the fact that God has been coordinating this thing all along. In verses five to 10, he talks about the vision that he received, the sheet coming down and the voice of God speaking to him. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, I would never do that. I've never put anything unclean in my mouth. And God says, do not call something impure that I have made clean. He gets that vision in verses five to 10. And then the Holy Spirit tells him to go with these people. And he notes the timing. Look at verse 11, the messengers show up. And he says, right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. He puts a little timestamp on it. And he goes, I was having this vision experience. And God three three times tells me what I need to do. And right then three people show up. So he's noting the providence of God. The spirit confirms this, do not hesitate to go with these men. And so he gets up and he goes and he says, also there were six of these guys with me in verse 12, which means they had a quorum. They had enough people, seven different Jewish witnesses that they could confirm the reality of what happened. And so they go and they go into the house. And when they get there, they find that there's a coordinating message that Cornelius has also experienced a word from the Lord in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, send a Joppa for Simon who's called Peter. So they go and they get him and they bring him back. And here's what the angel says to Cornelius. He, Peter, will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So go get this guy and he's going to come and he's going to preach. And as a result of that, you are going to be saved. You and your household are going to experience the salvation of God. And furthermore, then the Holy Spirit confirms the whole thing. So while he's still speaking, verse 15, the Holy Spirit comes on them just as he had come on us at the beginning. He's preaching and the Holy Spirit descends on them and they begin speaking in different languages. And so God is saying, this is my doing. You can't manufacture this. You you can't argue this thing away. I am bringing my salvation to the ends of the earth. I'm bringing my salvation to the Gentiles and you can either stand in my way or get on my team. And so God here is revealing his providence in all of this. He is at work. And one of the things that we need to learn to do is to trust God's providence. We need to look at the circumstances that we find ourselves in and recognize that God is doing something here. So right now, uh, one of the temptations that we have is to look at the events of coronavirus and social unrest and racial inequality and all these things that are going on. And we get so frustrated. We get angry and we say, why on earth is this happening? And we begin to think that God is mishandling the world that he made. And we get angry with God and we begin to question his goodness. But here's what I want to suggest. What if God is actively at work in this moment? And what if the place that we're in right now is exactly where God wants us to be so that we could learn something? so that we could grow, so that we could be challenged. Let's not be the, the kind of people who on the other side of this, we come out and we're the exact same. We've just dug our heels in and we've just kind of grinded it out. And we've just kind of waited for things to lift and pass. And then we can get back to life as normal. What if everything that we're going through is by the hand of God to bring us to a place of humility, where we look to him in this moment. and We say, what are you, what on earth are you doing? And what can I learn here? How can I grow? How can I be involved in in the work that you're doing? I think as a church, you know, I think um, I want to be careful not just to rush back to how things were before. I think that would be, I think that would actually be kind of foolish to just try to get back. Oh, we just got to get back to meeting the same way that we did before. Well, what if God has kind of placed us in this moment? So we might really evaluate how things were before. And maybe we might see God has a better way. Let's trust God's, providence. Let's ask better questions. When we're looking at the world right now, we need to be asking, what is God up to? J.I. Packer, he puts it like this. He said, if you ask, why is this happening? No light may come. Now that's kind of a Puritan way of saying no insight, no understanding, no knowledge. If you keep asking, why is this happening? No light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. So right now, instead of asking, why is it like this? Why is this so hard? What's my business going to look like after this? What's church going to look like? When can we get back? Should we practice civil disobedience? All these different questions. We need to be reframing everything and saying, no, how can I glorify God right now? What if providentially I'm right where I'm supposed to be, but I need to be more in tune with the spirit of God and what he's up to? How can I glorify God in this moment? This story teaches us about the providence of God. Finally, it teaches us about the promise of God. The promise of God goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. God has promised that he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He said to Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. This good news is called the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. There's a promise that God is bringing about. And this story reminds us of that promise. God has made a way for salvation to come through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the son of God came. He was crucified and resurrected and lives forevermore. And by placing your faith in him, you experience all of the blessing of friendship with God. So the promise shows up in our story when we start seeing its effects. The people, the Gentiles, Cornelius and his household, they believe in Christ and they are saved. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The promise of God is coming true in a very tangible way right in front of them. That they are being filled with the Spirit of God and speaking different languages. Then they come to the, the conclusion in verse 18. God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this is even amongst the Gentiles. God has done something that resulted in these people repenting of their rebellion against God and placing their faith in Christ, this message of salvation. And that has led to life, eternal life. The promise is coming true. It's the good news of the gospel. It's Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. It's people trusting in him for salvation. And then, and then they're coming together under the banner of Christ. One of the outcomes of the, of the promise of the gospel is that people who are very different from each other would become family. I'm going to show it to you from the book of Galatians because it's so clear there. This is Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and following. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Here's what it's saying, that by placing your faith in in Christ, people who are very different from one another now come together in our family. They're co-heirs according to the promise And so these distinctions, they no longer matter. They're no longer the most important things about us, whether we're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We can be united in Christ Jesus. And that promise, we see it come true here in our text as the Holy Spirit descends on the people of God and shows the equality and the unity of this new people. So they say it like this in verse 17, Peter puts it like this. If God gave them the same gift that he gave us who believed in the Lord Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Hey, buddy. So there's a unity there. There's an equality there. There's a fact that they're both receiving the same gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's showing that God is not making the distinction that other people are comfortable making. He's showing that they're unified under Christ. And they then are also experiencing repentance that leads to life. Look at verse 18. So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So here's the result then. When this promise comes true, verse 18, they had no further objections and they praised God. Wouldn't that be wonderful if the dividing lines that we're so comfortable with right now if those began to fade and melt away and we see people coming together under the banner of Christ and instead of being hostile about that, we worship. Instead of having objections, we praise God. F.F. Bruce puts it like this, their criticism ceased and their worship began. May that happen in us. May we stop criticizing and start worshiping. So when we step back and we look at this entire section of scripture, what is it teaching us? It's teaching us that God is using his providence to reveal prejudice that he wants to change and challenge. It's showing us that we have this tendency to to draw lines that God doesn't draw and then to exclude people from fellowship that God doesn't intend to exclude. And he's using his providence to reveal that in us and then to make adjustments so that we might come together under the banner of Christ. John Stott, again, he puts it like this. He says, the same ugly sin of discrimination has kept reappearing in the church. All such discrimination is inexcusable, even in non-Christian society. In the Christian community, it's both an obscenity because offensive to human dignity and a blasphemy because offensive to God who accepts without discrimination, all who repent and believe. I pray that your dividing line is Christ and Christ alone. I pray that the one thing that you realize binds you together with the family of God is not how somebody votes but how somebody repents and believes. I pray that we would be able to transcend this moment and we wouldn't just kind of fall in line with all the talking points that we're hearing through media and social media right now. I pray that we would become a church where the good news of the gospel is the thing that we rally around and not our preferred vision for what our society ought to look like or the policies that we ought to adopt. I pray that we could be the church and I hope that you will embrace that calling. I hope that we will be willing in this moment to ask ourselves, are we standing in God's way? Let's allow the mission of God to move forward through us. So let's pray right now, and then we'll step into a time of communion. Lord, we ask that you would help us be your people. And we acknowledge right now in this moment that it is too easy to draw boundary lines that exclude people from fellowship. And Lord, we don't want our prejudice to be the thing that defines our church. We want to be the people of God who love and and serve and pray for even our enemies, Lord. And we would love to see the unlikely people coming to faith in Christ to express repentance and believe in Christ and have that lead to their eternal life. We, We want our criticism to stop and we want our worship to begin. And we want all of that to be informed by you, God. So would you help us, please, in Jesus' name, amen.